Well, we're going to wind him up and let him go. Mr. Bill Federer, he uh, is an author of many, many, many books. He uh, has a lot to do with trying to help people in Washington love their country and do the right thing. God knows he's got a big job ahead of him to do that. But uh, also, he's got a television program. I've traveled a little bit with him. I've known him for, I don't know, probably 20 years but I'm real, I'm real honored to have him here today to teach you and me a little bit about our, our founding and our history. Could you make a lot of noise? Let him know he's welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But I want to. I'm the guest, but I'm a friend, and I want you to stretch your hand. Let's just say a prayer for Pastor Gary. And um, wow. thank you, Heavenly Father, go ahead and stretch your hand out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for healing Pastor Gary mm. from this procedure. Help and strengthen him, Lord, Please. every cell in his body. Bless Please. him and his wife and family and Fellowship mm. Church. Mm. Thank you that the best days are yet ahead. Amen. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Isn't he a great guy? Come on. Go get him. Come on. So I write books on history and I go around and talk about them, but I'm going to try to weave some stories of George Washington and then in the second service, Abraham Lincoln, because February has President's Day in it, right? So we're going to try to get a spiritual message out of the lives of these two presidents, uh, put together some uh, books called Prayers and Presidents, and then one called Miracles in American History, and then uh, some DVDs on that. And last week I was in Missouri and I was speaking at the Missouri State Capitol and they had like uh, a whole room full of the state reps and the state senators there and they have term limits, so they're all brand new. Uh, I was surprised they had eight pastors got elected as state representatives. How do you like that? There is hope. <laughs> and, um, but they were asking me questions that seemed to me uh, basic, but... A lot of people don't know the history. They're busy working their jobs and everything. And so uh, uh, one of the great quotes from Arthur Schlesinger Jr. was a historian on John F. Kennedy's staff, Pulitzer Prize winner. He said, history is to the nation as memory is to the individual. So have you ever met an individual who has lost their memory? Maybe they have Alzheimer's. It's sad. They forgot who they are. They forgot who you are. Guess what? We have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the freest country that planet Earth has ever seen. And we forgot how we got here. And we're, as a result, we're just letting our freedoms. So some of the stories I'm sharing will help us to remember how unique our country is. Well, just to go ahead and jump into this, if I, um, let's see here. Do I need to press something other than the... The, is, the power button is on the left-hand side. Power button, that does help. There, it even vibrated when I pressed the power button. So this is Lawrence Washington. He's George Washington's older half-brother. And he fought underneath of... Admiral Edward Vernon during the War of Jenkins' ear, and the English guy got his ear cut off by the Spanish. And anyway, um, and so they fought down and, and captured Portobello, Panama, and took a whole lot of gold. And um, anyway, um, Edward Lawrence Washington named his big estate back in Virginia after his admiral, Admiral Edward Vernon. So it's Mount Vernon. That's where that came from. Anyway, uh, then Lawrence Washington tried to get his younger half-brother, George, into the British Navy. And he actually pulled some strings with his leadership there, and he got George Washington uh, accepted to be a cabin boy on a British ship at around the age of 14. Well, his mother, Mary Ball Washington, uh, put her foot down 
and decided, no, you're not going to go. And he went ahead and gave up and went back to growing up. Now, why do I share that story? Uh, if a door closes, God has a better one. <laughs> Think of it. George Washington could have just been another British Navy guy. What would have happened to our country? And so sometimes you have your heart set on something. I'm going to follow my big brother. He's fought in the war. He's a big hero. And I'm going to go in his footsteps. And the door gets closed. And rather than get you know, all upset, he submitted to God's will. But God had a better plan. Sometimes if a door closes in your life, God has a better plan. And you don't get into the flesh and everything. Just trust the Lord and he'll, he'll open the door. Now, George is now about 17, and his older brother Lawrence begins to get tuber tuberculosis. And so the doctor says, go to Barbados for recuperation. And so 17-year-old Washington goes with him. It's the only time George Washington leaves the country. And he goes down there. While he's there in Barbados, he catches smallpox. And he is stricken and, and in bed, almost dies, but he recovers. Now, it must have been pretty painful, shivering and fever in the bed with smallpox. But guess what? Once he got it and got over it, he was immune to it. And when the Revolutionary War happened, more soldiers died of smallpox than died in battle. And Washington was able to ride amongst them and not have to worry about catching smallpox because he already got it. Right? Canada would have been part of America had it not been for smallpox. Right? Benedict Arnold led an army up there before he betrayed the country. And uh, we're about to, to capture Quebec and Montreal, but his soldiers all got smallpox, 5,000 of them, and so they abandoned it. So sometimes we have sufferings, and we go through the sufferings, and we're like, God, how can you get any glory out of this? I, you know, How is this going to be? I'm shivering with fever in bed or whatever. But sometimes when you go through those sufferings, it equips you to be better able to minister to others that are going through crises. You've been through a crisis. It's been really tough. The Lord's been faithful to pull you through it. But now you're in a position to minister to somebody else that's going through that crisis in a way that nobody else could. God uses our sufferings for his glory. Well, the tensions increase, and it's called the French and Indian War. And one of the stories is in 1755, uh, there were... Uh, French that controlled everything west of the Appalachians, and the, the uh, British wanted to take the French area. And so the British are marching toward Fort Duquesne, and they're ambushed. And there's 14 soldiers, 900 are killed. Wow. The British have a young wagon driver, 20 years old, named Daniel Boone. And the British have a 21-year-old... Uh, uh, colonel named George Washington. His older brother Lawrence died. He inherited Mount Vernon. And so here's young George Washington. He's like the, one of the largest landowners in Virginia. And he's, you know, the single young guy. And back then, you got a position in the military based on how well off you were, right? And so the, the people that had the means would get the higher positions. And so he, he's a, a young colonel. Anyway, uh, the general, Edward Braddock, is killed. And now George Washington's in control. He buries Braddock uh, in the middle of the road because he didn't want the Indians to find the body. And then he presides over the burial service. And um, later he returns uh, to Fort Cumberland and he writes a letter to his younger brother, John Augustine Washington. He says, as I've heard since my arrival at this place a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech, 
I take this early opportunity of contradicting the first and of assuring you that I have not as yet composed the latter. It's not a dang speech. He says, um, but by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation, for I had four bullets through my coat, two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. And so here, this was a, a miracle. Years later, an Indian warrior said, Washington was never born to be killed by a bullet. I had 17 fair fires at him with my rifle, and after all, could not bring him to the ground. So, trust God in times of crises, right? You know, here you are going along in the woods, and you have 1,400 men, and you're ambushed, and 900 die. Have you ever been going through life, and all of a sudden, everything bad happens? You know, lawsuits, and IRS, and marriage problems, all kinds, it all hits at once, and the moment it hits, it looks hopeless. And you're almost ready to cave, but hang on, because once you decide to hang on, it gets a little bit better, then 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 a little bit better, until finally you're past the crises and you look back and you're like, man, I, I almost let go at that spot right there. But now, look, it's all everything God has blessed and then turn the things around. When the devil comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up the standard against it. So when that flood comes in and it looks hopeless and you're about to cave, don't cave. <laughs> hang on, trust the Lord. And he'll pull you through the storm. Uh, now, after the French and Indian War, the British were the most powerful empire on planet Earth. The King of England was like a globalist. <laughs> he controlled 13 million square miles and a half a billion people. All of India, a quarter of the world's population right there. Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, and America. And America's founders decided they did not like this globalist king telling us what to do, so they decided to flip it and make the people the king. So it's a polarity change in the flow of power. Anyway, so during this time, lots of battles, but I'm picking out one because of the fog coming in this morning. So, it's, it's August of um, 1776, and Washington is in New York, and he sees the harbor fill up with uh, 300, 400 British ships carrying 32,000 British troops. The, it's the, they described it as the harbor turning into a forest of trees because of the mass of all these ships. And um, Continental Congress declares a day of fasting. We earnestly recommend the 17th of May, 1776, to be observed as a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. I, I said August, we'll get to August, but this is in May. It says that we may, with united hearts, confess and bewail our manifold sins and transgressions, and by a sincere a repentance and amendment of life, appease God's righteous displeasure, and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, obtain pardon and forgiveness. You know, the Continental Congress is having a day of uh, prayer, and they say through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And so uh, they rush a copy of it out to George Washington, and he reads it to his troops, the Continental Congress, having ordered Friday the 17th instant to be observed as a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer, humbly to supplicate the mercy of Almighty God, that it would please him to pardon all our manifold sins and transgressions. The general commands all officers and soldiers to pay strict obedience to the orders of the Continental Congress, that by their unfeigned and religious duties, uh, observance of their religious duties, incline the Lord and give her a victor to prosper our arms. So we pray in times of crises. Washington writes a letter to his younger brother. We expect a very bloody summer of it at New York. We are not either in men or arms prepared for it. If our cause is just, as I do most religiously believe it to be, 
the same providence which has in many instances appeared for us will still go on to afford us its aid. And so they rush this. Now, why is the declaration important, right? They, they rush a copy of the declaration out to Washington. Uh, it says, laws of nature, nature's God. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The Declaration of Independence mentions God four times. But the second time it mentions, I want to point out, the King of England did not believe all men were created equal. He believed he was created a little extra special. It's called the divine right of kings. It's this idea that the creator gives all the power to the king, and he's God's lieutenants, and he dispenses it to all these lowly things called people, right? Well, in America, we sort of leave out the king. The creator gives the rights and power to each individual person. And we're all equal, and we choose from amongst equals who's going to fix the potholes in the roads and defend against the Indians, right? And so this was the idea that God is jealous, and he wants a personal relationship with each person, and he wants to give his rights and to each person directly. Anyway, so Washington, after he has the declaration read, has chaplains put in each regiment, and he gives the order, the general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will endeavor to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier, defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. And so he mentions Christian. And so it's called the Battle of Brooklyn Heights. So here's Washington. He's in New York. He's looking at this harbor all filled up with British ships. And his men, the blue line there, it's facing the water. There's a loyalist. Now that's someone who lives in America, but they're loyal to the enemy. I know it's hard for us to imagine that type of person ever existed. Um, anyway, this loyalist shows the British where to land far away from where the Americans are and um, march all night long through Jamaica Pass and attack Washington from behind on the morning of August 27, 1776. And so it's the biggest battle of the entire Revolutionary War, and it's the entire American army. There's no second string. This is it. And so 3,000 Americans die. Only 300 British. It's totally lopsided. Washington watches these 400 young soldiers of the 1st Maryland Regiment, and they're charging directly into the British lines. All of them end up dying. He watches from a distance. He says, good God, what brave fellows I have lost this day. Well, the sun goes down, and now Washington is trapped up against the water with the British that stuck from behind, and his men are stuck against the water, and his probably thoughts going through his mind, uh, well, the next day I'll be captured by the British and hung, and America will be another British colony, like India or Kenya or Australia, right? Um, no. Washington decides he's going to get every boat he can find, and he begins to ferry his army across the East River to Manhattan Island. Now, the river is smooth as glass, but out where the British ships are in the, in the harbor, it's this nor'easter wind, and they're all turbulent. And so he's doing it real quiet, and they're moving the horses, the cannons, all the supplies, and all, all night long, just as fast as they can. And then the sun starts to come up, and he is in a real bind because he has only moved half of his army. And he thinks, oh, no, we're, we're really sitting ducks. Well, his... Chief of Intelligence, Major Ben Talmadge, writes, as the dawn of the next day approached, those of us who remained in the trenches became very anxious for our own safety. And when the dawn appeared, there were several regiments still on duty. At this time, a very dense fog, like we saw this morning, <laughs> began to rise off the river. 
and it seemed to settle in a peculiar manner over both encampments. I recollect this peculiar providential occurrence perfectly well, and so very dense was the atmosphere that I could scarcely discern a man at six yards' distance. We tarried until the sun had risen, but the fog remained as dense as ever. So Washington continued to move his troops, and he kept going until finally it's around noon, and he's on the last boat that leaves. The fog lifts, the British charge, and no one's there. This was the last chance the British had to capture the entire American army all at one fell swoop. And so this tells us that we do everything we can, and then we trust God. If Washington would have said, okay, man, I'm really in a pickle. I got the water here. We got the British charging for it. Oh, Lord, help, help, help. Yeah, but you do everything you can. And it's like, okay, quick, let's get them all there. You know? And it's like, oh, we're running out of time. The sun's coming up. Do everything you can, and you trust God. Right? And the word for Holy Spirit is paraclete. And that means one who comes alongside and helps. So we do it, but he helps us do it. It's not like, imagine, I tell people, you want the Lord to use you, it's like a basketball game. You're sitting on the bench, and you're complaining, why don't they ever throw the ball to me? It's like, you're on the bench. (laughs) You at least got to get out on the floor and and get open, and then they'll throw the ball to you. It's like, why isn't God using you? Just do something. Whatever he puts before you. And Washington writes, the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all this, the course of the war, that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith. But it will be time enough for me to turn preacher when my present appointment ceases. Now that word providence, Webster's Dictionary, 1828, says providence, the care and superintendence which God exercises over his creatures. By providence, divine providence is understood God himself. Well, then we have the Battle of Princeton. So Washington crosses the Delaware, or crosses the the East River to Manhattan Island. And the next six months, he's the British land, and they chase him all across New York, all across New Jersey, across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. And in that six months, his troops dwindle from 20,000 to 2,000. And now it's freezing winter. Uh, He then crosses on Christmas Day evening and does a battle at Trenton, and then he sneaks back over. And then the British come. And they're bringing all their regiments, and they're coming after him. And so Frederick the Great calls these 10 days the most brilliant in world's history, from the Battle of Trenton to the Battle of Princeton. So, after winning the Battle of Trenton, Christmas Day evening, 1776, Washington's 1,200-man force faces General Cornwallis's 4,500 British soldiers. And so Washington is camped out near Princeton, and he decides to leave his campfires burning and leave a couple guys in camp to clang pots and pans. And he marches his whole army out of Princeton all the way around the town to attack the British from behind. Sort of like what they did to him at Brooklyn Heights. And so he orders his soldiers to march in absolute silence. They even wrap their guns with heavy cloth to lessen the noise of the troop movements. And so God intervenes here. So British commander, Lord Cornwallis, he orders Colonel Mahood's regiments to stop whatever they're doing and come and join the rest of the British army. Well, what were they doing? They were watching all the roads 
to try to find out what Washington was doing. Well, now they're ordered to join the British troops. The roads are open. So Washington is able to march his troop across roads with nobody watching. And um, so he marches all night long in complete silence, and he's there on the backside. And while the British are facing this empty camp, he attacks the British from behind. And so uh, it's January 3rd, 1777. Now the British, they're thrown off guard, but then they turn and they do a bayonet charge. And they're charging at Washington's men. And uh, then some of the militia get scared and start to run away. And so there was a General John Cadwalder. He fell into a panic and began to flee. And then the other men began to flee. And then the other men began to flee. And all of a sudden, this was going to turn into a big mess. And so to stop the retreat, General George Washington immediately rides to the front of the line and orders these soldiers to stop running away and to follow him. And so he turns around and he's marching back towards the British and their bayonets, and he rides within 30 yards of the British. I mean, that's like from here to the back of the room. He gets that close. And then what does he do? He turns and faces his men, and he says, Halt! Aim! Fire! And so they fire past Washington at the British. And the British do what? They fire back. Now those muskets put off that smoke, and so all of a sudden, the whole field is filled full of smoke. And one of the, uh, uh, and everybody thought Washington must have been killed. Here he is in the middle of the field, getting shot at from both sides. And so Irishman John Fitzgerald, who was an American aide-de-camp, pulled his hat down to cover his eyes as to not see Washington killed. Oh, no! <laughs> I don't want to see it. But when the smoke clears... They see Washington in the middle of the field, waving his coat, saying, charge! <laughs> and so his men charge, and they end up winning the battle and capturing a whole bunch more of the British. And so here we have a situation, sometimes it just takes raw courage to trust the Lord. Just to step out of the boat, just to face your fears. You feel you're afraid to talk to somebody about something, go ahead and talk to them. You're afraid to witness, afraid to pray, just go ahead and have courage to step out. Looking for a, a job or, or something, it takes courage to follow the Lord. I don't know why, but the Lord sort of puts all of us into situations that test us. Here's Abraham, God's favorite, right, in the Old Testament, Abraham. God knew his heart. But God said, okay, Abraham, you know that son you've been waiting for for a long time? Yeah, yeah, Isaac, yeah, yeah. Um, I want you to kill him. Whoa. And Abraham's like, uh, he doesn't complain. He tells his wife, Sarah, he goes, we're going to go offer to the Lord. And so they leave, and, and the son says, well, Dad, we have the, uh, the, the wood, and we have the fire pot, you know, a little pot that they keep the coals in for the fire, and but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's like, God himself will provide the sacrifice. But he goes up there to the top of Mount Moriah and he ties Isaac up and he's about to follow through with it. And then the angel says, stop. And then in the bush there's a ram and God provided the ram and he sacrificed it. God provided the, the, the ram, the lamb, Jesus. And Jesus was our sacrifice. 
So, we all will go through times of testing. I don't know why, but each one of us is different, and the test will be different. But I guarantee it'll test you to within a hair's breadth of your life. You don't know what's in a toothpaste tube until you squeeze it, and you really don't know what's in your heart until you're under pressure. It's not fun. But guess what? God's there. He's with you. You trust him. Trust him in these times of testing, and it takes courage. In the book of Revelation, it says, To he that overcometh, I'll give the, he that, eat of the tree of life. And he that overcometh, I'll give a new name. And he that overcometh. There's one of the stories where, uh, you know, Elijah was running down the mountain. And he was like, fast the chariots and the soldiers. And, and it says in the scriptures, he says, If you uh, faint when you're running with footmen, how can you run with horses? So uh, if if the times are tough, God's like, look, I, I got a whole bunch more for you to do. You can't let this little trial hold you down. But, um, so, this is going to have some, some quotes. So the statue in, in Washington, D.C. of George Washington on his horse is the statue from the Battle of Princeton, where he stood there, you know, facing his army and... Um, the statue was dedicated, the sculptor says, at the Battle of Princeton, where Washington, after several ineffectual attempts to rally his troops, advanced so near the enemy's lines that his horse refused to go further, but stood and trembled while the brave rider sat undaunted with reins in hand. But while his noble horse is represented thus terror-stricken, like on the statue there, the dauntless hero is calm and dignified, ever believing himself to be the instrument in the hand of providence to work out the great problem of liberty. Anyway, and I thought this was interesting. So the president of Yale is Ezra Stiles, and he gives a speech. He says, Congress put at the head of the spirited army the only man whom the eyes of all Israel were placed. And Israel, he's talking about America. He says, this American Joshua was raised up by God and divinely formed by a peculiar influence of the sovereign of the universe for the great work of leading the armies and conducting this people through the severe and arduous conflict to liberty and independence. And so he's referring to Washington as America's Joshua. And um, he says, In our lowest and most dangerous estate, 1776 and 1777, we sustained ourselves against the British army of 60,000 troops commanded by the ablest generals Britain could procure throughout Europe. He says, this was sealed victory by God Almighty in the victory of General Washington at Trenton and in the surprising movement and battle of Princeton, by which astonishing effort of generalship, the whole British army was instantly stopped and remanded back. Thus God turned the battle to the gate, and this gave a finishing to the foundation of the American Republic, who but a Washington, inspired by heaven, could have struck out the great movement and maneuver at Princeton? The United States are under peculiar obligations to become a holy people unto the Lord our God. Now, uh, there's some more quotes, but I, um, I'm going to skip past it to this last part. Here. Talking about Benedict Arnold and how he was about to betray West Point, and um, the, uh, <laughs> the spy he met with was named John Andre. And um, I'll, I'll tell it real quick. Uh, John Andre hid the map of West Point in his sock and, and put his boot on. And he leaves Benedict Arnold and he's sneaking back to the British side. 
and he almost makes it. He's going to betray West Point. It's our biggest military base in America, West Point. And um, uh, some guards come out of the woods, but the guards are dressed as uh, German Hessian troops. And so if this spy, John Andre, would have kept um, he could have made it. But at the last minute, he sees these guys dressed as Hessians come out of the woods, and he goes, oh, it's good to see some people on our side. And they say, what do you mean our side? Well, you're dressed as Hessians. Hessians are hired by King George III to fight these Americans, so you must be on our side. And they go, no, we're Americans dressed as Hessians. And he goes, you know, I sort of knew that. You can never tell nowadays. And he tries to talk his way out of it, and they go, yeah, we think we're going to search you anyway. They search him once, they search him twice, let him go. But in the heel of his boot, they find the map of West Point. And here's another picture of it. See, there he is, with his boot off, and they're looking at this map. They you didn't tell us about this. Oh, yeah, the map, yeah. And they say, we're going to take you back to talk to our superiors. And so, anyway, he's caught, and um, General Nathaniel Green says, treason of the blackest eye was yesterday discovered. General Arnold, who commanded at West Point, was about to give the American cause a deadly wound, if not fatal, stab. I forgot to mention, George Washington was going to be visiting West Point the very day it was going to be betrayed. So he would have got caught. Anyway, so it goes on. Um, Happily, the treason had been timely discovered to prevent the fatal misfortune. The providential train of circumstances which led its discovery affords the most convincing proof that the liberties of America are the object of divine protection. And then Ezra Stiles, president of Yale, says a providential miracle at the last minute detected the treacherous scheme of traitor Benedict Arnold, who would have delivered the American army, including George Washington himself, into the hands of the enemy. So sometimes you've got this enemy, and he's, you know, Jesus, here he is, he's got the Pharisees, the Sadducees and everything, but on the inside he has a Judas. And, he's, and so if, if Jesus had to go through that, there's a good chance that we'll go through something similar to that, right? So you got all these big challenges, but then there's somebody that you trusted, and they're talking about you and slandering you and, and all kinds of pilfering and, and bad stuff. And so if Jesus went through it, we probably go through it. You know what I mean? But, and I've, I've been across the country, talked to lots of people, and I hear all the different stories, and sure enough, everybody, I, I ran for Congress three times. I mean, I know what it's like to have... You know, uh, on election night, the phone call comes saying, we lost these boxes of ballots. We're counting all the ballots, and we can't find these boxes of ballots from all the different precincts. And I'm like, okay, where are they? And then your opponent comes on the screen and says that he announces he won. It's like, okay, you know. But everybody goes through something. But you just have to trust the Lord. And God pulls you through. And so Continental Congress is so happy that Benedict Arnold was caught. They have a day of thanksgiving. The late remarkable interposition of his watchful providence in rescuing the person of our commander-in-chief, an army, from imminent danger at the moment when treason was ripened for execution. It is therefore recommended a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to confess our unworthiness and to offer fervent supplications to the God of all grace to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread over all the earth. Anyway, so you look at these founders and we see that they trusted in the Lord. You know, one of the things I, I think it's important, Pastor mentioned at the beginning, is knowing Jesus. And I found my, my favorite way to, to share the gospel, and just in the last couple of minutes I want to share, as Adam and Eve sinned against God and hid, have you ever sinned against anybody? You sort of don't want to be around the person you've sinned against. 
you're talking about somebody behind their back and you're making fun of them and all of a sudden you look up and that very person is walking through the door toward you. Over there, or, um, I don't know, my mic's gotten out, so I'll grab another one. Um, so you see somebody coming, are you drawn to want to go over to that person that you just were slandering? Or you're like, oh great, there they are. I think I'm going to sneak out the back door. Your own conscience does not want you to be around the person you've sinned against. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they were the ones that didn't want to be around God. God still wanted to walk with them in the garden. So it's like two magnets that are stuck together and one of them turns. First one wants to touch, but the second one just wants to get away. So it's not so much that God sends people to hell. It's once people sin against God, their own conscience wants to avoid him. It's their own conscience that wants to get away from him. So Adam and Eve says, man, we blew it. We have to do something to make ourselves acceptable to God. They put on fig leaves. That was the beginning of false religions. Man coming up with man's idea how to make man acceptable to God. We've got to do something. Did their fig leaves make them acceptable to God? No. And this little line, God made Adam and Eve coats of skin. We read it really fast, but if you think of it, how do you make a coat of skin? Something has to die. You think God went to the other side of the garden, killed an animal, and brought Adam and Eve some nice tailored outfits? Or do you think maybe he killed the animal right in front of them? And they witnessed the first death ever. Right? Creation just happened. This is the first thing ever to die. And Adam and Eve are watching this innocent animal go through the pangs of dying. And they're thinking to themselves, we're the ones that sinned, but this innocent animal is the one that's dying. And God wanted to make it really clear to them that this animal was dying in their place. That right in front of them, he strips the skin off the animal and he puts it on their naked bodies. Maybe it still had some blood on it, right? They were covered in the blood. And the rest of their lives, they're wearing the skin of that animal that they, that they watch die in their place. And whenever God sees Adam and Eve, he sees them clothed with the skin of the animal. The lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So Adam and Eve tell Cain and Abel. Cain decides he wants to worship God, but he does an offshoot of the church of the fig leaf. He starts the church of the fruits and the nuts. <laughs> what, California? No. Um, but Cain's is a religion of works. And how do we know Cain's was a religion of works? Because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake, and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. And so here's Cain working in the field, sweating, getting his wheat and his barley, he's hoeing and planting and harvesting. It takes a lot of work. He piles in all of his works on the altar. Did his works make him acceptable to God? No. And Abel trusted in the lamb. And it's this picture. God's on one side. We're on the other side. Our sins separate us from God. The polarities are the wrong direction. And the lamb pays for the sin. And so Abraham offered lambs. Moses had every family in Israel kill a lamb, put the blood over the doorpost of its house. The high priest brought the blood of the lamb into the holy of holies and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. The blood actually changed it from a judgment seat into a mercy seat. Right? You've got the Ark of the Covenant with the angels and the Ten Commandments inside, and the top is the lid, which is called the mercy seat. But he sprinkles the blood on it. If you approach without the blood, you'll be in the judgment seat. Point to Jesus. John the Baptist points to Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So God's on one side, we're on the other side. Our sins separate us from God, and the Lamb pays for the sin. So I asked people, are you approaching God as Cain or as Abel? 
If you are still hoping you're good enough to go to heaven, you are approaching God as Cain. I hope I piled enough stuff on the altar. Mm, Maybe a couple more handfuls of barley. That'll do it. Or are you approaching God as Abel? It's not me doing it. It's this lamb that paid the penalty and took the punishment for all my sins. Now, why did the lamb have to die? God is a just God, and he cannot help it. It is his nature. He is just, which means he has to judge every single sin. Otherwise, he's giving consent to the sin. In law, silence equals consent. Remember the old wedding ceremonies? Anybody against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you are holding your peace, you are giving consent to the wedding. If there's a sin going on and God's holding his peace and not, not stopping it or, or, or judging it, he's giving consent. And guess what? He's not going to give consent to sin. So he has to judge it. His very na- and you know what? That's been implanted in each of us so much that every police drama you see on TV starts off with an injustice done in the first two minutes. Right? NCIS, somebody's killed. And, and you are held captive the rest of the hour wanting the person that did it to be brought to justice. Just know the guy's got to get caught. I know he's got to get caught. He's got to get caught. And then when he's caught, he's like, yeah. And so in the first two minutes of the book of Genesis, an injustice is done. Cain kills Abel. And God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was it crying? An injustice is done. Innocent guy killed. You're a just God. You've got to judge the guy that did it. That's the only side of God that the devil knew. Here's Lucifer, beautiful angel, puffed up with pride, wants to put his throne higher than the throne of God. God said, you have sinned against me, you are out of here. So the devil goes into the garden, sees Adam and Eve, and says, hmm, if I can get them to sin against God one time, God will have to judge them. He gets them to sin, that was easy, and then he stands back, ha ha, you're a just God, you've got to judge him. Remember the book of Job? Satan comes before the Lord, you're... You're not really a fair God, because the reason Job's good is because, because you're playing favorites. So he was really pointing out, he was really accusing God of not being just. And so, uh, so the devil's like, I got Adam and Eve to sin, you're just God, you got to judge him. So God sends this fireball of judgment, but in steps the lamb and takes the hit. So God is just in that he judges every sin, but he's love in that he himself provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. He's completely just, but he's completely loved. He has to judge the sin, but he provides the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. Now, if you think of it, the, this, the lamb. You know, I was reading the book of Revelation, and it's all the vials of judgment that's being poured out. It's God that's pouring out the vials of judgment. I thought, why is that? Once and for all, for the rest of eternity, rest of eternity, God has to settle the score and judge every sin that he missed along the way. And the angels say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And so in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross. And if you think of it, the Bible says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. He experienced that judgment as if, excuse me, as if it was a thousand years. If you think of it as a scale... An eternal being who is innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all the finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. 
an eternal being who is innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all the finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Jesus literally suffered the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places and experiences as if it was a thousand years. He paid for our sins. And so we approach God through the blood of the Lamb. Without the blood, we're approaching judgment. With it, we're saying, it's, it's already been paid. You provided the Lamb, we're trusting in the Lamb. Now, the, as long as you think you're, you're going to heaven is based on you being good enough, you will always have this nagging thought in the back of your head, did I do enough? And that very thought will cause you to avoid God, to hesitate, to, to hang back. Did I do enough? Did I do enough? Well, the answer is simple. No, you didn't. And you'll never be able to. But he did enough. He paid the penalty for your sin. And the moment you believe that, really, truly believe that, there's nothing left to hold you back from embracing the Lord. Right? You mean I don't have to avoid him anymore? No, it's all been paid. You mean he's not upset? No, it's all been paid. You mean there's not... No, it's all taken care of everything. And the moment you really believe there, like, whoa, I can, I can run and embrace the Lord. And then Jesus rose from the dead to show that he is who he promised he would be. And he sent his Holy Spirit and filled us. And now we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we're out there reaching people to draw them to Christ. I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor. Thank you so much. Thanks. What a blessing he is. Yeah, let's go ahead and get on our feet. Amen. One more time. Tell him thank you this morning. Please, please. You wind him up. Amen.